in this period you have the fiscal approach also becoming conservative so all around the economy you had signs that important sectors of the economy were extremely sluggish why wasn't investment taking place despite all the attempts to promote private investment despite all the reforms that have been taking place it simply just didn't pick up at all this particular central government has changed a lot of the norms of how an economic policy is operationalized in india however now we can see that the things are happening at such a fast rate in the contemporary times given the amount of literacy level out there with people analyzing the policies at every level but on the question of demonetization uh, it was one of those things on which probably most economists were on one side of their understanding of demonetization because uh, the frankly speaking the economics in what required to understand what impact it would have was fairly elementary it didn't require sophisticated economic analysis and that in an economy where currency is used is part of the chain of payments you suddenly take away a certain part then the chain of payments gets disrupted there is an economic disruption but on the other side you do not have actually uh, prospects of a significant benefit in terms of additional tax revenues simply because the numbers don't add up hello and welcome back everyone to another episode of the bigger picture a podcast series by ecospire the economic society of shahid bhagat singh college i himanshu mittal along with shitin jisundi will be hosting today's episode with none other than professor surajit mazumdar on india's macroeconomic state from golden period 2003 to curbing black money via demonetization in 2016 Professor Surajit Mazumdar an economics professor at Center for Economic Studies and Planning JNU New Delhi Professor Mazumdar did his masters MPhil and PhD from the Center of Economic Studies and Planning Jawaharlal Nehru University and was also the member of the 2013 to 2016 team for the research program on the topic the state globalization and industrial development in India the political economy of regulation and deregulation a teaching career spanning more than 25 years His expertise ranges from political economy to industrialization and the Indian corporate sector. Honored and privileged to have you with us over here, sir. Over to you, Himanshu. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be here. Likewise, sir. It's an honor to have you here. So, as we know that year 2020 alone has overseen a lot of economic policy changes made by the government, keeping the political interest aside. There have been pretty controversial things in the sense that they require significant changes in the foundation functioning of the industry. From one of the most significant shock to the banking sector in the form of demonetization and taxation system in the form of GST to the laws governing backbone of the larger population of Indian workforce that is the three farms bill. This particular central government has changed a lot of the norms of how an economic policy is operationalized in India. However, now we can see that the things are happening at such a fast rate in the contemporary times given the amount of literacy level out there with people analyzing the policies at every level. The analysis obviously isn't fulfilling in the sense that it lacks mostly the ability to offer a bigger picture to the audience. and therefore in order to enlighten us with topics such as these and many more economically phenomenal themes we have with us professor surajit mazumdar with us so without any further ado i would request shitanjay to ask the first question all right 
starting with the first question, uh, we talk about the golden period of India's economy that was 2003 to 2008. The growth rate at that point of time was 9%. However, in 2008, as we know that the whole world faced a global financial crisis, which also affected India, brought the growth rate to 6.6%. Given the scenario, the government rolled a fiscal stimulus, which revived the growth rate to 7.7%. In that particular fiscal stimulus, the tax rates were reduced in order to increase the spending. After some time, the tax rates went to the normal point from where they were reduced. It was followed by a massive contraction in 2012-2014 by 5.6%, which is indicative of the factor that the growth achieved by fiscal stimulus did not sustain for long. So, sir, what do you think was the primary reason why the stimulus didn't turn out to be that sustainable as planned? Was it withdrawn too early or what sort of precautions the government could have taken at that point of time to minimize this contraction? Well, I would say that the fact that the growth sustained for some period of time after 2008, uh, after the immediate impact of the global crisis, was perhaps partly because of the fiscal stimulus. And from the beginning of this decade, from 2011-12, uh, Indian fiscal policy changed uh, back to the old approach of uh, fiscal consolidation. So the increase in the fiscal deficit that happened during the period uh, after the global crisis. So actually, if you see the period of high growth up to 2008, between 2003 and 2008, in that period, you had a massive increase. Uh, you had not only high growth, you also had a, that was the only period in the post-1991 phase of the Indian economy in which India's tax to GDP was This increase in the tax to GDP ratio was mainly driven by direct taxes. And the major part of that came from corporate taxes because corporate profits grew very rapidly in that particular period. In a sense, you could say the increase in the tax GDP ratio in that period was driven by a process, underlying process of increasing inequality in the economy. So it was at the higher end of the income ladder that a lot of the growth was happening and that increase in uh, even without an increase in tax rates, you had an increase in the tax to GDP ratio, simply because tax paying sections of the economy, uh, their share in the total income was increasing. Now, so in that particular period, what you had was that the government used the increase in tax GDP ratio to significantly bring down the fiscal deficit, not so much to step up the increase in expenditure. Nevertheless, because revenues were growing very fast, it was still a period of reasonable growth of uh, public expenditure. After 2008, much of the fiscal stimulus of the government was on the tax side. That is, you reduce taxes, you increase expenditures, but not by that much. But nevertheless, because of the reduction in taxes, the deficit, fiscal deficit to GDP ratio increased uh, over the next few years. And in 2011-12, even though there was no sign that the economy was in a position to kind of uh, resume growing at the same pace as earlier, without the support of a fiscal stimulus, the decision was made. And this is a decision that has been carried through by two successive governments uh, of fiscal consolidation, which basically meant bringing the fiscal deficit back down to the levels which it had in 2008. Throughout the decade, that's what has been attempted. 
but unfortunately much of that effort has had focused on the expenditure side because the tax to gdp ratio uh, which suffered as a result of the fiscal stimulus uh, never quite recovered and actually till date we have not had a situation where the tax to gdp ratio in india has managed to exceed the level that existed in the last year before the global crisis erupted which is 2007-8 so in a sense throughout this particular decade you have not had any kind of a fiscal push being given to growth in the indian economy now this is happening at a time when uh, uh, there are other kind of changes that are taking place between what was happening in the previous decade and in the first so you referred to this period of uh, in golden period of growth okay it's only golden in terms of growth it's not necessarily golden in terms of many other indicators that you might look at at that time but let's look at the question of growth itself what you saw what did went along with that particular growth so you had a high gdp growth you had also one of the rare phases in the history of the indian economy in which the investment ratio went up significantly that is because a large part of the growth was being driven uh, by massive investment primarily by the private corporate sector so investment was growing very very rapidly in that period and in a five year period you had india's investment uh, ratio which is the capital formation fixed capital formation to gdp ratio increased dramatically by almost 9 percentage points okay uh, so first in, uh, thing was that investment grew rapidly. You looked at the external sector, uh, India's trade, both exports as well as imports. Uh, exports were growing fairly rapidly because of global conditions, but so too were imports and actually imports were rising faster. So the trade deficit was actually increasing during that particular period of boom. Uh, so uh, trade was expanding. You look at uh, other indicators, you look at even manufacturing sector, it was pretty uh, rapidly growing. Uh, you look at uh, bank credit, it was a period of very rapid growth of bank credit. Foreign investment flows into the Indian economy were also very high in that period. Uh, so too was outward investment from the Indian economy. So the external sector was clearly very important to the Indian growth story and so too was investment. But if you look at this particular decade, before demonetization or GST or the COVID crisis affected the economy, if you look at the whole decade of the 2010s, what you find is investment stagnating and therefore the investment GDP ratio in India, the, the increase that had taken place in the previous decade has been reversed. You look at India's trade, both exports as well as imports, there's been complete stagnation for an entire decade. Again, the trade to GDP ratio has, which had increased in the previous decade, has, that has been uh, reversed and it has come down again to the levels that existed earlier. You look at bank credit growth, very rapid in the previous decade. Bank credit growth has been extremely tepid throughout this uh, particular decade. Manufacturing activity, if you look at the uh, index of industrial production data, which is the measure of the volume of industrial production. Actually, the decade of the 2010s, there's been only one previous decade of this kind in the entire history of the Indian economy since independence, which is the decade from the mid 1960s, which is referred to as the stagnation decade. 
when students of in the indian economy would be know about the famous stagnation debate which was about why that stagnation actually occurred after the end of the third five year plan so we this is actually the second stagnation decade uh, of the in, uh, indian economy so it's been one whole decade of very very poor industrial growth uh, another major sector where you see a dramatic change is in construction construction was one of the fastest growing sectors of the indian economy between the mid 1990s and the end of the 2000s but in this decade construction growth has also been extremely tepid so you have these dramatic changes taking place and if you look at now indian growth in this particular decade it's been only driven by consumption not investment not trade on the production side it has almost entirely relied on the growth in services because i mean agriculture was not doing very well earlier it was not doing didn't well do well in this decade uh, industry was not doing very well uh, so essentially it was much narrower basis in services was the growth of this particular uh, period so therefore and in this period you have the fiscal approach also becoming conservative so all around the economy you had signs that important sectors of the economy were extremely sluggish why wasn't investment taking place despite all the attempts to promote private investment despite all the reforms that have been taking place it simply just didn't pick up at all nothing compared to the dramatic 30 35% per annum real growth that was taking place in the previous decade uh, whereas this decade if it were sometimes it was close to zero if it went to even 4 5% that would be great so why is it that this particular change happened uh, and the impact of this on the fiscal side was that this slowing down of in critical parts of the economy which is also the reason why so many people are skeptical about the gdp growth figures shown by the new series of the gdp which was introduced in 2015 because normally all the other correlates of even 7 to 8% gdp growth Uh, that you would expect to see don't seem to be there even in the new gdp series okay uh, so as students of economics would know that it would be very strange for a growth process to be driven only by consumption normally we think of consumption as a derived expenditure rather than the autonomous expenditure which drives uh, growth uh, uh, so uh, a economy in which investment is stagnating growing at 7 to 8% per annum this was a rather anomalous picture which just doesn't fit in with all that we know about how growth takes place which is why people were skeptical about this particular growth now one of the implications of this was also that uh, if at such a time you are trying to follow a policy of trying to cut back the fiscal deficit then that invariably tends to focus on the expenditure side because the implication of these sluggish trends in the economy is that revenue growth is poor when revenue growth is poor and you want to stick to a fiscal deficit target a target of reducing the fiscal deficit what do you do you adjust on the expenditure side but when you adjust on the expenditure side what you do is to reinforce these sluggish tendencies within the economy because all these are signs of the fact that the there is some problem on the demand side for the economy that on the demand side nothing no component is increasing 
Now, exports, of course, depends on what's happening globally. Fine enough. Investment depends on whether there's demand for what is produced with that investment. So why is investment not happening? It indicates that there's a problem with the demand side. Uh, and uh, if investment doesn't happen, then of course it reinforces a demand problem because investment is also as a dual character. It not only creates capacity to produce, it also creates a demand for things that are produced. So this transition that happened between the previous decade and this decade is a really marked transition uh, in the data that you can see. What it does is to slow down the revenue growth. And when the revenue growth is slowed down and expenditure is also, as a result of that growth is slowed down, you reinforce this process through fiscal policy rather than to correct the problem that there is an inadequacy of demand. So this golden period that we are talking about from 2003 to 2008 with a growth rate of 9%, uh, we have also noted that the proportion in which growth happened was not even close to the proportional bloom we saw in the employment sector. Uh, since Indian economist Rakesh Mohan also quoted this situation as jobless growth. However, on the other side, service sector in India flourished, but there was a huge disproportionate growth between service sector and manufacturing sector. There was no fundamental pull by service sector towards the manufacturing sector. The link totally detached away, no hiring or job creation or any sort of derived demand for raw material was registered from primary sector. So despite the 9% growth, what exactly led the phenomena of jobless growth, high rate of unemployment and the disconnection between these two sectors? Into this problem, into this entered demonetization, GST has two kinds of shocks. And now we have a third shock in the form of COVID, uh, which is then going to mean that the situation is going to become far grimmer. Why this transition occurred? Was this a transition? Uh, is it only because of factors in this decade or was it something that was inherent in what was taking place in the previous decade is a question that is worth asking. My own answer would be that this was an inevitable consequence of what had actually been the accompaniments of the high growth in the previous decade. And that was the increasing uh, problem of unemployment. So what is the essential problem of the Indian economy structurally is the following. That you have an agriculture sector which traditionally employed much of your labor force. No longer in a position to sustain agrarian households. So you have for the last 20, 25 years, a fairly significant movement out of agriculture because that's what we call the agrarian crisis, that people do not have the means to sustain on the basis of agricultural incomes alone. So you have a movement out of agriculture because of which there's a large number of people seeking non-agricultural employment, but there isn't that scale of employment available. If that employment is not available, then what happens? This large labor force that you have part of it simply is remains or exits the workforce it engages in other activities to sustain the household rather than looking for employment uh, it this has happened to a large scale with women but of course it happens with others also and the indication of this problem is that the working age population in india as a proportion of the total population is many times larger than the 
proportion which is employed. If you don't look at the unemployment figure, but look at the employment figure and compare it with the number of people in your country, in your uh, in the country, who are in a working age population, that gap is exceptionally large. So, lots of people are simply not in the uh, in employment from which they can generate an income. And those who are in employment, in a labor market situation where a large number of people are seeking work and not enough work is available, a large number of them end up basically is receiving very little for the work that they do. And this is almost uniform across all sectors of the Indian economy, that no matter how productive the sector in which you're employed. So even in the corporate sector, uh, in the organized industrial sector, where the employment may be highly productive, the levels of the wages are low and they tend to stagnate. So if a large section of the population then is stuck with either because of low income in agriculture or low wages in non-agricultural activity or low income self-employment because they don't have any other resources to which uh, 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 to generate high productive employment for themselves. Uh, for all these reasons, if you have a large section of the population stuck in this situation of low and stagnant incomes, then any growth process, of course, produces growth of incomes, but it produces growth of incomes in only a small part of the population. And this means that the demand base on which any growth process can sustain uh, becomes narrower and narrower relative to the scale of the uh, production. And that, that means that it's a growth process which is inherently unsustainable unless you are able to address this problem of inequality and address this problem of large segments of the population simply not being able to in a position to either find work or to find work which gives them a reasonable uh, income uh, and a growing income. So that's the problem that the Indian growth process has, that it is has been taking place on a very narrow uh, social foundation on the demand side. Uh, uh, and that is what has eventually caught up with it in this particular decade. And if you decide at that time not to use fiscal policy to either support the economy on the demand side or to use fiscal policy to redress this problem of increasing inequality, then you are not, then you are actually ending up evading uh, the solution. So attempts have been made to revive the previous growth process. Uh, but I do not think that that is revivable in the same sense. And I think I have the evidence of one full decade story to substantiate the position that perhaps the time for that growth is gone and you need to find a new different basis for Indian growth, sustainable basis for Indian growth, which must address this problem of unemployment and inequality. And if you look at the Indian story of structural change, and I'm, I'm taking a long-term view, uh, not just of the last uh, two decades. If you look at the Indian story of structural change, uh, and compare it with the patterns that have been observed in other parts of the world, uh, then you find that India is a, quite an outlier. That whether you compare India with the more advanced economies of the world, or whether you compare India with uh, other countries which are in the same kind of group as India, uh, which former colonies, which basically sought to industrialize in the second half of the 20th century, uh, which are not the early industrializers, but the late industrializing economies. Even relative to them, if you see, India is an outlier in the sense that 
you have two important differences india has with the classical kind of pattern of structural change uh, the classic pattern of structural change in an economy is that you start from an agriculture dominated economy and then your spurt in growth uh, comes from a process of industrialization in which the industrial sector's share in both output and employment tends to increase uh, and then you move to a stage where services or the tertiary sector becomes important the crucial thing here is of course that when it comes to the transition to industrialization typically uh, the industrialization phase is the highest growth phase of the uh, of the economy the industrialization phase is also one in which the share of the industrial sector in output that is in gdp increases faster than its share in employment that's because relative productivity in the industrial sector tends to increase quite rapidly because of technological progress uh, but when you get the transition to services you typically have a slowing down of growth and you have uh, the reversal of what you see during industrialization which is that the share of services in employment tends to increase faster than the share of services in in output if you look at the indian case in the indian case the second phase of industrialization has been extremely limited in the sense that the degree of industrialization of the indian economy uh, before it moved to a stage where services started becoming important was much less than observed elsewhere and took started at a much lower per capita income level than elsewhere so india never really fully industrialized before it made this transition to services and in the transition to services you have what you have a uh, this transition to services you have it being led by output and not so much employment okay so the structural change in india's employment structure is quite different from that of other countries so if you compare india with most industrialized economies of the world or countries which are more industrialized than india including china then you find that uh, when you look at employment actually india's share of services in employment is much lower than is normal in other parts of the world including china china's major part of employment now is in services and not in manufacturing even though it is the uh, factory of the world so when you industrialize and then make a transition to services that pattern seems to be different than when you go to services without industrialization and i would suggest that this has something to do with the process of increasing inequality uh, that because of increasing inequality you have the higher income groups making the transition in their demands from uh, primarily demand for manufactured products to demand for services uh, whereas the large proportion of the population because its income remains remains low low doesn't even make the transition from being primarily food consumer to major consumers of manufactured goods so what you don't get is a significant demand for manufactured goods but an increasing demand for services but services that are demanded by a relatively small proportion of the population do not create they can be demand for high value services but they do not create significant employment so if 10% of the population wants teachers wants doctors wants uh, barbers 
wants drivers, wants maids, whatever they may want. If only 10% is demanding those, in a position to demand those services, it's not going to create a very large employment. So the employment problem in services and the inability of industry to grow may both be related to the fact of the demand consequences of uh, high inequality in the Indian economy. And if that is the case, then you have a structural situation that keeps the, if you do not get growth of either services or industry of a kind which absorbs your labor force, then what you have is a, uh, if you people have, if anyone recalls Arthur Lewis's uh, concept of unlimited supply of labor, where an economy has surplus labor, so there's a minimum wage at which supply of labor is always available until you exhaust that. So you reach, you are in a situation where it's an inexhaustible reserve, and therefore the wage remains more or less uh, fixed. So if that is the case, then the demand problem which is re resulting in this situation is only getting reinforced by it. You're stuck in a vicious circle and you can't escape from it unless some intervention through state policy is done and fiscal policy in particular has an important role to play in intervening to break this cycle in a way that generates employment incomes and therefore the demand for a sustainable process of growth. All right, sir. Thank you so much. Yeah. Moving on to the next question. Uh, so the question is regarding the vicious cycle of poverty itself. As we see there after the 1990 forms, India saw an increase in the per capita income. Also, a lot of people came out of poverty, but still there existed economic inequalities which kept on increasing. In absolute sense, the country was growing, but in relative sense, the gap between the rich and the poor was still increasing. Those who came out of the poverty again entered the vicious circle in the long run, indicating that the growth wasn't sustainable. So we would love to know your comment on this. Like what exactly went wrong in the first place after the reforms? Because of the complacency of the government or something else that led to this thing? Well, one of the assumptions behind the reforms was that if you open up the Indian economy, and if you rely primarily on the spontaneous tendencies of the economy to generate growth and development, uh, then that's the best way to go forward in terms of uh, it will, if you let the private sector kind of lead the process of investment and growth, then that's the best way for the economy to grow. Understanding was that before that uh, in government policy was too restrictive, it kind of checked the uh, energy, the animal spirits, and prevented India from making the best use of what was available in the world. The problem is in that assumption itself, that uh, the problem is that if you, uh, that, uh, any, any process of growth to be sustainable, okay, has to ensure that the growth has a certain kind of distribution. If you have a growth process that leads to this kind of increasing inequality, then you have a problem of the kind that I've been describing. Okay. And increasing inequality then keeps reproducing itself because the increasing inequality prevents the growth from acquiring a character 
where it can eliminate this large labor surplus that exists in your economy. So if you have a spontaneous process where the labor market becomes tight because employment increases, then okay, that automatically will win wages and uh, all will start going up and uh, in, incomes at the bottom would also start increasing significantly. But if you don't have that, then the spontaneous process is that you have a large labor surplus that leads to low income, low income amongst large sections of the population. The demand implications of that means that your growth process does not manage to generate the employment, which is required to absorb that labor surplus. So it's a vicious cycle which keeps getting repeated and repeated uh, because of this. Uh, so if you have this kind of a vicious cycle, that's the spontaneous process of the economy. Then you have to be able to intervene to change that dynamic. If you have to intervene to change that dynamic, then you have to use the instruments that are available to you. Now, if you are an open, completely open economy, open to capital flows, open to trade flows, then you are automatically constraining yourself to some extent. So you have to first, you have to, uh, to an extent, regulate, which doesn't mean closing your economy to the world, but regulate your external interaction such that you create the space for intervening within your economy in a way that addresses the problems that we are talking about. Because there are two ways you can address the question of inequality in the process that is inbuilt into your growth process. One is, what is the basis for this inequality? That all the assets in the economy, which uh, are used for production and to generate an income, the assets are also concentrated in the hands of those who have high incomes. That's their asset ownership is the basis for their high income. And because they are the ones with high incomes, they can accumulate assets. Whereas the rest, because their incomes are low, primarily have to be used for consumption. They not only don't have assets, they can't accumulate assets either. They're stuck. That, that's a kind of inequality that remains perpetual and increasing. So either you have some mechanism of asset redistribution. Okay. Like earlier land reforms used to be talked about as such a mechanism or uh, some other form of asset redistribution you think of. If not that, then the minimum is that, okay, the economic process leads to a certain distribution of income. You intervene to uh, alter that particular distribution of income in effect by taxing those who receive a large portion, relatively more than they are taxed now, and divert that to expenditures which will, I'm not talking about just giving doles, but expenditures which generate employment, expenditures which generate demand, expenditures which create a durable basis for the employment expansion within the economy, development of its infrastructure, health, education, other sectors in which you can invest more. And the scope for that exists in India because on the one side, you have a problem of demand facing several sectors. On the other side, you can know that you're an economy full of deficits. There's an infrastructure deficit, there's an education deficit, there's a health sector deficit. There are areas where you can spend, which are available to you. You're not excess in, uh, you're not going, 
you're not going to create a kind of existing and all of these will also in turn create employment have multiplier effects on the economy so at the least one has to be able to move away from the approach that good fiscal policy is a policy of low taxes and uh, low expenditure uh, and low fiscal deficit this approach has to be something that has to be uh, uh, modified if any intervention effective intervention has to be done in order to be able to do that however you also have to ensure that your external sector relationships are such as to allow you that autonomy otherwise you can take a certain policy and that uh, engineers a crisis on the external side because you don't know economy kind of open to volatile capital flow so suddenly every capital starts flying from india and you create a crisis so you have to restructure both your external relations as well as your internal economy in order to be able to address this particular problem but it requires first abandoning the assumption that the spontaneous process of the economy uh, is what will generate the best uh, or optimum trajectory for india's economic progress all right sir thank you so much uh, so coming to the next topic that is the banking crisis in india obviously and by the monetary policies that we have monetary system india has always been exposed to the npa banking crisis as of now indian public sector banks collectively owe approximately 6.8 trillion indian rupees uh, as npa at the end of the fiscal year 2020 with such big digits involved there comes a lot of consequences in the investment corpus so the question is how do we deal with such big digit numbers and its inevitable consequences so that the primary priority of monetary system is revived and recapitalized okay so let me say what is if one wants to look at the origins of the problem of the nps of course uh, there can be uh, uh, cases where uh, the system has been played by people there are irregularities in the lending process all that is of course uh, true and those have things happen but there are also systemic problems which underlie this particular problem of the npa crisis so if you look at the previous decade government was keen to encourage investment in infrastructure by the private sector okay and public sector banks were encouraged to lend to private sector entities for such infrastructure investment so what government was actually doing was instead of spending itself on infrastructure development it was transferring that onto the private sector and encouraging public sector banks to lend to private sector entities for this infrastructure investment now there was a problem or a crisis that was inherent in that particular thing itself infrastructure is notoriously a sector in which it's typically always a sector where under investment is expected to happen because the uh, the long gestations difficult to earn a revenue uh, Uh, so therefore typically in many uh, uh, economies infrastructure investment primarily is done by the state but in india because the state was not wanting to spend it encouraged private sector to spend to develop infrastructure which in india is of course extremely limited the partly the problem was inherent in that that, that infrastructure investment was never going to be able to generate the kind of returns that would be required to uh, service that particular debt so partly 
uh, in the very nature of that investment, there was a problem. The second problem is that no matter what you, if you are going to invest in anyway, you may invest with the best of intentions. But if you at the end of the day, you have a demand problem and the interest and any investment in any sector faces a demand problem because of which you don't have adequate returns to that particular investment, then you don't have the means to repay. So the NPA problem is in a sense an outcome of this very condition, very context in which the state does not wish to spend but wants to make the private sector spend. And uh, the, 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 the whole sum total effect of the policy approach is that you do not have adequate demand in the economy to justify the uh, uh, to investment. The investment is, however, being held back not because there's a financing constraint, but because there is uh, not enough demand that potential investors see as justification for that investment. So that's the basic problem, which is also reflecting itself in the NPA problem of banks. That basically, investments have been done which don't generate a revenue, partly because of the nature of the investments themselves partly because of the demand problem. And of course, there are certain other, in certain cases, other problems of uh, land, etc., and all that are there. But there are also problems of the macroeconomic context which are generating this particular problem of NPS. I personally do not feel that the lack of investment is a reflection of the non-availability of credit. The lack of investment is a fundamentally a problem of demand. And if investment were to happen, the resources would uh, become available. So the bank credit stagnation is also a reflection of this absence of adequate demand in the economy rather than the problem of NPS. Sir, this is the most fulfilling answer that I have come across about the NPA banking crisis. So thank you for the answer. Moving to the next question we have, Mr. Anil Bokil, a member of Pune-based financial think tank, who initially advised the idea of demonetization to Prime Minister, he initially proposed that this idea, due to the lack of tracing cash transaction, that accounts for 80% of total transactions of around 800 lakh crore annually and the rest 20% transactions happens via bank. Having said that and keeping political interest aside, now we have seen that how much inconvenience demonetization had brought in in the system. Do you think the purpose with which it was started in the first place would ever be served? I uh, would answer that would have answered that question in the negative, even at the time that the policy was taken. Even if one didn't know what uh, was the final, even if one did not know the things that were so subsequently actually happen. The reason being this is that. The, uh, the proportion of cash or currency that was in circulation in the economy you is something that you actually knew how much currency was in circulation, how much currency would be held by people. Okay. And uh, you knew from that particular figure that if all black incomes or wealth were to be held in cash, then there was not likely that you had a very large black economy. If you had a large black economy, then much of the black wealth and uh, would be uh, held in non-cash forms. And of course, a lot of the black incomes would already have been spent. Okay. And it would not be therefore true 
that those holdings here, when you suppose I have earned money through illegitimate means, but then I go to a shop and buy something, then I pass that money on to someone else. That person is holding that currency. He is not in, indulged in any illegal activity or any corruption or any uh, uh, anything of that kind. So in his hands, it's not black. Okay. So we knew from those figures themselves that it was simply not possible for much of the black income or wealth to be held in the form of money. And therefore, that particular measure uh, held in the form of currency. So a measure that was directed at currency was unlikely to affect the uh, black economy in any significant way. But it could and did produce collateral damage of a much larger order. The second thing that we know is what had happened, which is that when you had demonetization, then you know now that almost the entire currency that was declared uh, illegal was returned to the banks. Okay, Almost the entire currency was returned to the banks. That itself tells you something, that anyone who's holding, who was holding that currency found a way of returning it and converting it into legitimate currency. Okay. And they would have done so only if and only if it was true that in their estimation, the expected loss in terms of higher tax revenue that they would have to pay in the future was greater than the amount of money they would lose if they did not return it to the bank and get it converted. If I had saved a 500 rupee note and I wanted to uh, decide should I go to the bank and inform the bank that I actually have this 500 rupee note? Because that might have consequences. They'll know I have that 500. Income tax people may ask me where that 500 is going to come from, where has come from, and I might in the future have to pay more taxes than the 500 that I'm trying to save today by getting it converted to the new note. If I, my estimation was that my future taxes would end up being much more, I would face more of a cost then I would rather suffer that loss of 500 today because in the future I would be better off. But somehow most Indians holding the currency, their calculations were that they were not going to lose more in terms of taxes. Otherwise they wouldn't have returned it. So the fact that they, it was all got returned means that in their estimation, they were not going to lose in terms of more taxes. And then the record of the tax revenues actually generated after that stand as evidence to prove that their estimation or assessment was absolutely correct. That you don't actually see a pickup in revenues that has happened. In fact, both demonetization and GST, which have, uh, uh, which were expected to be reform, uh, generate more tax revenues for the government. Uh, in both cases, the effect so far has been the exact opposite. So, uh, in my view, it was known beforehand that demonetization was never going to work for the purpose that it was stated to be working for. I'm not sure that uh, what was the calculation behind it, what how much of it was political, how much it was based on economic reasoning. But uh, uh, in the case of demonetization, and, I, and I, I'll only point to one simple fact that on most economic policy issues, if you were to survey economists, uh, you would find that there would be a fair degree of diversity of views. So if you ask people on GST, there would be different views of different people about whether GST was a good idea, bad idea, whatever it was. 
uh, you ask on any policy, economic policy, you would normally tend to see a diversity of views. But on the question of demonetization, uh, it was one of those things on which probably most economists were on one side of their understanding of demonetization. Because uh, the, frankly speaking, the economics in what required to understand what impact it would have was fairly elementary. It didn't require sophisticated economic analysis. Uh, that in an economy where currency is used, is part of the chain of payments. If you suddenly take away a certain part, then the chain of payments gets disrupted. There is an economic disruption. But on the other side, you do not have actually uh, prospects of a significant benefit in terms of additional tax revenues, simply because the numbers don't add up. If 12% uh, uh, of your GDP is currency held at any point of time, if 12% of your one year's GDP is the total black income and wealth held in this country, then uh, then you really don't have much of a black economy problem. Uh, uh, so, so, so you knew from the numbers it was not going to have that particular impact. And what is actually, if you see that uh, GDP growth, which even in the new GDP series, after demonetization, you have seen a kind of slipping down of growth. And both with demonetization and GST, we still don't know the full impact in the data because we don't know how much of these are all measures which had exceptionally adverse effects on the unorganized sector of the economy. And our data systems do not have the capacity to capture such exceptional effects. So we are assuming normal, normal year in an abnormal year. So we don't really know how much of the damage has actually been done to the unorganized sector and most likely we are overestimating unorganized sector growth. So if you take all that into account, then uh, the effects of that are quite visible that the loss in terms of growth of output, loss in terms of uh, uh, even revenue uh, are not been, uh, have been far outweigh any potential benefits that measure could have had. All right, sir. This was a wonderful session. With this, we come to an end with another episode of The Bigger Picture. We sincerely thank our speaker, Professor Mazumdar, who took out time out of his busy schedule to join us for this intellectually invigorating talk. Thank you so much, sir. And we would like to thank the lovely audience for listening to us. Stay tuned for more upcoming episodes of The Bigger Picture.